The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, John Cuna. Today, we'll be discussing Josh Gordon and substance abuse. So, you know, no person, no player, or or su- no substance abuse situation is ever quite the same, right? So we're going to probably do uh, a series of different episodes at yeah. some point on substance abuse, because I think... You know, you see a, a lot of diversity in people's experiences, and it's never quite alike. So I think there's a lot to glean from uh, a lot of different players' experience when it comes to substance use or substance abuse. And this is obviously a huge issue, not just in sports, but um, right. but you know, globally. So today's focus is on uh, is on Josh Gordon. You know, a quick bio of Josh Gordon. You know, he's a wide receiver in the NFL for the Seattle Seahawks. Previously played for the Cleveland Browns and the New England Patriots, and we're familiar with him a little bit. Um, I, mean, I was familiar with him anyway, but but obviously when he came to the Patriots, uh, we were you know front and center to understand mm-hmm. what his path was and uh, you know how substance use and, and relapse was kind of taken center stage in his life uh, yep. in general, but also as a, as a football player. So he played college football at Baylor and was selected by the Browns in the second round of the 2012 NFL supplemental draft. So the supplemental draft is for players whose eligibility was impacted somehow, preventing them from entering the regular draft. I think for him, I want to say when he was at Baylor, he got suspended mm-hmm. um, because of multiple infractions or violations with substance use or, or failed drug tests. He then transferred to Utah, but I think I think he missed, narrowly missed uh, applying for the 2011 supplemental draft. Then went to Utah, sat out the whole season, and entered the, uh, yeah. the 2012 supplemental draft to get uh, drafted in the NFL. So a, uh, a few random facts about Josh Gordon. He led the league in receiving yards in the 2013 NFL season and made first-team All-Pro that season. I think that was his rookie season. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the only season he played all the, every game. After that, it was uh, you know he I think he missed like I want to say 43 of 48 of the next games to the Browns because of the substance abuse issues, which yep. is quite a lot. He is of Haitian descent. In high school, he played football, basketball, and ran track. He ran the 4x100 and the 4x200. John, I'm not a track expert, but I think those are sprints. Sprints. Relay sprints? Relay sprints. Awesome. Thank you for helping me out. (laughs) Um, Although he was recruited for football by many schools, he in part chose Baylor due to a probation issue in the state of Texas. He lived in the state of Texas and uh, really wasn't allowed to leave, I think. So he was recruited by non-Texas you know, colleges outside of Texas, but really couldn't do that, so he had to go to Baylor. He transferred, like we said, to the University of Utah, Sat out the 2011 season. So, uh, you know, we didn't have a specific uh, charitable organization in mind, but I did I did put a link uh, in the show notes to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse um, so that in case people want to look into that or donate, uh, you know, obviously this is a huge issue uh, globally, but especially in the United States uh, with the opioid crisis, things like that, mm-hmm. um, which we're not really going to get into as much today, but that will be its own episode. So, uh, John, before we get into the player spotlight, you know, what's your familiarity with Josh Gordon before doing prep for this episode. You know, I knew you, you know, the the flash, right? I think he had a yeah, lot of hype yep. coming out of it, you know, coming out of uh coming out of the draft. I think there was always sort of some stuff surrounding, you know, behavior stuff and substances was sort of like in his in his atmosphere. Yeah. Um there was a lot of expectations that were on him um coming up and you know, he knew he was going to be a, you know, the the, the big talent that yeah. was coming through. He was a big, tall, fast wide yeah. receiver. Yeah, 6'4", I think, right? 6'4", yeah. something yeah, 6'3", 6'4" and fast. So and like, impeccable shape. I mean, if you look at the guy, he doesn't have an outside fat on him he's clearly like right. just in really really good shape yeah and so you know that was a lot of you know him coming out to that just there was this big aura of excitement sort of around him he had some stuff that was sort of the baggage he was kind of bringing along with him but there was a lot of um stuff coming with him so i was always sort of excited I, you know i admittedly knew about the track stuff too because that's obviously some stuff that i you know a little bit more privy to because i was a track athlete (laughs) so um i'm always interested in that type of stuff Mm -hmm. um to hear that so 
that was mostly me just really excited to see what he could do. Um, I wasn't really, I'm not much of a foot, a college football follower, so I didn't really watch too many games of him, you know, at Utah or anything like that, but just excited to see him, you know, come up and sort of see what he could do. And then that rookie season really like delivered. Um, and like you said, was sort of all, like most receiving yards that, that year. So, mm-hmm. um, that was my my understanding. I knew that there was some stuff and stuff and like behavioral issues. I think was one of the ways that he was described, sort of coming through. So I knew that stuff was coming was yeah. was coming up, sort of around him. But yeah, I didn't know much about him. I kind of remember him being drafted in the supplemental draft and mm-hmm. and hearing the whole thing you hear with a lot of situations like this in sports. Like has all the potential in the world. I think we heard that yeah, as a cliche yeah. like yeah. nonstop. And it kind of I'll get to that in a second because I you know I think. From what I remember of him is is that the most is that 2013 season because he you know came in to people talking about potential and he just crushed it. I remember my brother had him on his fantasy team and, and uh, just destroyed our league because he had him <laughs> and uh, I think one other player, one other wide receiver, maybe Des Bryant that year. Mm. If I, my oh. memory serves me correctly, money. You always remember the losses more than the wins, right, Johnny? <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, uh, Trev, my brother Trevor, he just absolutely crushed our league that year. So that's neither here nor there. Because mm-hmm. my, my main point is that. I think it's easy to have as a takeaway in these situations, you know, the the cliche kind of what a waste of potential, right? Uh, I think that's just such a, you know, it's it's an easy place for people to go when they're talking or reflecting on Josh Gordon, and I just think it's kind of bullshit because you know he's a person, and I yeah yeah we can talk about his his uh, his status as an athlete or what he could have been versus what he ended up being or any of that stuff, but at the end of the day, you know you learn about this guy and this is before we even did research for this episode. I mean, my, my main takeaway about Josh Gordon was just feeling for the guy, you know, just not about football, you know, really just about like, man, this guy's clearly been through a lot. Uh, I hope he's able to get to a point where he's got peace in his life and he's uh, consistently healthy, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing what substance abuse is so hard, addiction and recovery is so hard and, and relapse is always part of the process. So, um, that was, you know, has always been what, how I viewed him is just hoping that he's, he's happy in a good place, regardless of what other people are saying about him or, um, you know, whether people consider him a waste of potential and all that crap that we hear all the time. Yeah. So to get into our takeaways, I mean, I think the first one for me, you know, is that he, I'm going to kind of start at the end a little bit and then, you know, you and I are going to work our way back more to the beginning of his timeline, but you know, he clearly has bought into getting better and you can tell by the way he talks now. I mean, yeah. I think. Um, the language he uses. And I think this came through also with, with a little bit with Michael Phelps and, and Kevin Love to a degree where you, the way, you know, they talk about learning how to communicate <laughs> at, a, at like age 30 and the, <laughs> the, you know, language matters and the words they use are clearly a product of them getting help and then learning about, you know, sub, whether it's substance abuse or mental health or emotional, like the language of emotion, sort of raising their emotional IQ a little bit, their mm-hmm. EIQ. You can tell by the way Josh Gordon talks that he has gotten a lot of help and support and he is buying in. You know, it doesn't mean it's a guarantee to getting healthy right away, but he's clearly bought in, right? So he he's become more and more proactive about putting his health over football, which I think is great. Yeah. You know, it's so it's so easy for people to just be like, dude, you're a football player, like prioritize the team, yeah. get on the field, do whatever. Just play. Yeah, it's like these are yeah. human beings. Like if if they're not in a good place in terms of their life, we're talking life and death with some of these things. And who gives a shit about football? I'm sorry, but like mm-hmm. that's really what it comes down to. So he was able to, uh, you know, see his strengths. I think it came through, you know, him being able to see his strengths even through the struggles in response to his critics. And and one thing in particular came up where in 2015, you know, he, I don't, I didn't see exactly what the criticisms were. I know it involved maybe Charles Barkley and uh, Stephen A. Smith and mm-hmm. maybe a couple other people. You know, in the media, making comments about him, negative, judging him, that kind of thing, something along those lines. And he he said that um, this isn't a perfect quote, I'm paraphrasing, but he, you know, he succeeded by escaping. A, uh, he's talking about himself. You know, I succeeded by escaping a youth riddled with poverty, gang violence, and very little in the way of guidance or support. I succeeded by narrowly avoiding a life of crime that managed to sink its clutches into almost all of my childhood friends. I succeeded by working tremendously hard on my craft and my body to even have a chance to play professional football for a living. Mm-hmm. So to me, like that, like kind of gave me chills just even reading that because it's like, yeah, it's easy to 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 really go after this guy for like the mistakes he's made or the the slip ups and the relapses, but you can see based on what he was up against, there's no way you can spin this other than a huge success to to, to get where he got. Mm. Um, it's it's full of strengths and his ability, not doesn't have to be defined by what what he did wrong you know so um i know you have more information on the the media side what do you think about that 
Yeah, I think that was honestly that was my biggest takeaway from from doing these different things. The article that he or the letter that he wrote to his critics, I thought was really profound and powerful. And we'll have it in the show notes. And I encourage anyone to go through and, and read that because I think it really highlights one of the biggest gaps that we see in sports media. Um, I think that's why this this podcast in particular is so important because we're trying to shed light on these types of issues for people to like humanize athletes. We've talked about in previous podcasts before if we put these athletes up on pedestals and we sort of make them inhuman, that they're supposed to be perfect. They have to be all these different things. And, um, you know, I think you know, everyone in sports media is looking for like that hot take, right? And I mm-hmm. think for the most part, they're, they're negative, right? They're, you know, jo- you know, for Josh Gordon and Stephen A. Smith made comments about like, you know, I'm done with him, right? Or I'm so over, I'm so over Josh Gordon. And, you know, I, th- he had no context, he had no understanding, he didn't get into any of that type of stuff you've got. And I think that that's why there's such a blind spot um, for this work with what we're trying to shine light on of, there is a lot of other information that we'd had no you know, they didn't cover, they didn't talk about, they didn't try to put context to it. And I think that's a major problem in sports media. And and, and this Josh Gordon is certainly not the only example. Um, in, in, future, in future episodes, we're going to get into Dak, Dak Prescott a little bit. But, you know, there, this was just more recently. Skip Bayless made comments about him being outspoken about depression and, and those types of things. And these athletes are victimized for speaking about their mental illness. And um I think that that is just the absolute wrong approach because a lot of young guys especially look up to these athletes as their role models of how they're supposed to dictate behavior or what they're supposed to do when they feel like they're struggling. And then they see them try to speak up about what they're working through and then they're just beaten back down. And I I, I think that that's a real big problem um, with sports media in particular. And I think it needs to shift and change. And I think that that's part of one of the main purposes for this podcast is to start to con- to continue to push that change because you're just going to get more and more examples. I think we've 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 seen more examples of athletes coming up and speaking about these different things, which has been powerful. I still see a huge gap and and a lag in the sports media side coming in and supporting athletes coming up and talking about these things rather than. Just, you know, the concept, uh, you know, shut up and dribble or yeah. just play football or all these different things, which I think also deeply seated in racist beliefs yes, as yeah, well, totally. uh, yeah. but also completely irrelevant for what's going on. This person's trying to talk about something that's really important yeah. and being completely shunned aside. It's it's a real problem and continues to be pretty per- pervasive. Yeah, or at least ha- these networks like ESPN or, or other places at least be informed about yes. what you're talking about. Like, you know, I, I'm not saying they necessarily always have to to give athletes a platform to come on and talk about this stuff because right. I know they have limited time but like at least at least have the people that are on your shows have a, a limited understanding of what the hell is going on from the mental health side thing because I think if you look at the kind of uh, the timeline or the trajectory or the evolution of kind of pro sports it's gotten you know bigger and bigger and bigger right I think it's probably what led to organizations like ESPN getting as big as it did sure. throughout the the 90s and into the early 2000s you know started more more from just a strictly sports perspective right mm-hmm. then you just started to get people to that that veered off a little bit more into covering you know think like sports reporters right covering like you know sports and pop culture and that kind of stuff yep. and that's that's grown I think as the sports have grown, the platforms of these athletes and where they fall with regard to you know popular culture and everyday life of of the fans has grown right never more than it is today right so like they mm-hmm. and it continues to grow and part of that is about i think about live sports and how live sports fix, uh, fits into the on demand culture and that's the only thing left that people you know, that's why advertisers pay so much. The only thing left that is guaranteed people are going to watch it when it's happening. Yep. Nothing else really fits that category. You can always DVR stuff or you can watch it on demand oh, yeah. or whenever you want, Binge right? Binge watch, whatever. Yes. Yep. Nothing else fits the category of like, nope, I, I am, I could DVR that, but no one wants to watch sports when it's recorded. No one wants mm-hmm. to watch that. So it's led to these, you know, the, the, the platforms growing, salaries growing, salary caps growing, like the leagues have exploded because the TV deals are so expensive. Mm-hmm. And so for better or worse, I mean, th- that's, that's brought pro sports and pro athletes into uh, in, to another echelon of yeah. of uh, awareness and of you know being in the limelight for others. And you've started to see like the the race um, discussion and some political discussions come into the sports world. That was really cr- controversial over the last couple of years with ESPN and when should ESPN yep. touch on this? Should they not? Yep. You had a lot of conflicting kind of factions sure. on different sides of that argument. And I think personally, I think it's a good thing. Do I think it's it's it needs to be kind of limited at times? Absolutely. I don't think it should become all about that, but mm-hmm. you can't ignore it either. You have to talk about that stuff. Yep. I think mental health is the same thing. To me, for whatever reason, because I agree with you, 
they still haven't gotten to that point <laughs> no. where none of these shows so really far even behind. like attempt to talk about this stuff. Maybe it's because they don't get it. Um, but that that needs to happen. I mm-hmm. think that's the, if I had to guess, I think that's the next step where I feel like these these networks need to have somebody, whether it's like behind the scenes talking to the, the people that are on the shows mm-hmm. so that they understand the mental health angle, or have someone on the you know expert on the show. Uh, at times, I, f- I feel like people would eat that up because I think it'd be it's very interesting. You know, I think that's why again we want to do this podcast um, because I think people buy into this stuff, right? It affects you on a, an everyday basis. They look up to athletes. They want to learn about these examples, and I think it makes fandom uh, a little bit more balanced, right? You yeah. actually, it, I know fan is short for fanatic, but I always find that it's it's even more enjoyable to watch sports when you know something about the players and you can connect with them on on more than just a sports level, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that's why it's so important. I think, you know, two points. One would be that, you know, mental health is still, to talking about these issues is still sort of the exception, not the rule yeah. for a lot of these platforms. And I think we need to switch that completely. Totally. Yeah. And you make a really great point that I think it's really important that we understand the person. Right. We yeah. understand these people. I think from the fans point of view, it makes it much more relatable and you want to sort of root for the person that you have a little bit more of an understanding for. And and so I know we'll, we'll talk now about sort of this history kind of coming through the league. And it's it's ironic because I want to touch on one more thing related to that point, John, because as fans, we want to know more about the player, too. Mm-hmm. But ironically, if, if these leagues it, like if the GMs and the owners actually give a shit about getting the right players, <laughs> they should care about this, too. I mean, yeah. this is not. Like when you go and do a combine, you're testing physical attributes, right? Mm-hmm. Can you sit here and tell me that the mental health side is not at least close to as important? I don't know if say equally as important as like their performance yeah. on the field, but like it, it's a huge factor, right? Mm-hmm. You can, you know, how many times do we hear people talking about whiffs in the draft and stuff like that and character issue? They didn't see stuff like you need to have an awareness about their their mindset, their mental health, things mm-hmm. like that. It, not as a as a way to exclude them, but as a way to be aware of the player as a whole, so that when they're coming in, you know what needs to be done to put them in a position to succeed. If you're mm-hmm. not paying attention to that stuff at all, you are missing a huge. Yep. Like we know how analytics have come into sports in the last like you know uh, ten to maybe twenty years. To me, uh, a mental health awareness is still something that's lacking when it comes to just the assessment of players and understanding mm-hmm. how to put them in the best position to succeed. I don't think that has even no. remotely scratched the surface. Of no, and topic. I don't think I don't think it's at the point yet where. You know, I think it feels like it's like almost like 80, 20, 80 percent on like physical attributes, 20 percent on sort yeah. of there. But it's but the the mental components or the mental side of an athlete is never in my at least my understanding. Obviously, I'm not a GM behind the curtain making these big decisions, but usually not the deciding factor of whether or not they should draft someone. Actually, you hear quite on and with, with Haskins at D.C., you know, this yeah, year, yeah. you know, per- perfect example where everybody except the GM was talking about we don't really think that this is going to be a good fit for this person on this team. And then still still went ahead and got it and then we, you know you saw that you saw the out you know the what happened because of that it, it needs to be a part of that evaluation process to make sure that this person's going to be like an actual contributor to the team and mentally and, and sort of fits in and buys into what they're going to have to do and it's just not there yet yeah because it could be you know at times you know the one small fear i have is that it will only be used as an exclusionary yeah, criteria so we don't want that but no. like you know i think they at times, maybe they have to dis- you know, use it disclusionary to um, – because sometimes the, the player has to realize like this – for them to make changes, I don't want to say like every player, uh, whether it's a substance abuse issue or otherwise, has to hit quote-unquote rock bottom. Mm-hmm. But sometimes players have to have limits set so that they're able to see like, well, if this prevented me from getting drafted, then maybe I got to look in the mirror and change some things. So I think I'm afraid that it's only going to be used for disclusionary Agreed. criteria, but I think at times it needs to be. And even when it's not, I think a balanced way is at times for dis- for uh, reasons for disclusion, but at times for reasons of just being aware of the player and to say, okay, we're aware of these things. Mm-hmm. Do we have people on staff that are aware and that know how to greet him or yeah. her when they come into the building to put them in a position to be successful as an athlete on this team? Because I think that it, even if yeah. you don't use it for disclusionary reasons, right, it could be a, a way to set them up for success. And you talked about the 80-20. I don't, I don't know what – it's definitely not 50-50, right? No. I think the physical piece is always going to be more important. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's 80-20. Maybe it's 90-10. Maybe it's 95-5. But these sports are – you know, how, how often do you hear the, the phrase like a game of inches? Mm-hmm. The margin for success between someone who is like at the top of their game in college and never succeeds in the NFL or the NBA or you know Major League Baseball or any of these sports yep. versus one that is at the top of their game of college and does mm-hmm. is so narrow. You're telling me that even if it is just 5%, that that would make a huge difference because oh, yeah. the margin is less than 1% in terms right. of some of these people. So 
Um, yeah, to me, that's something where like I think it's a missed opportunity so far. I agree. I think you make a really, really good point about you know how these players could be welcomed in and supported rather than you know I think we I think it's definitely a fear that we've talked about sort of off air and you know maybe we'll have a future session on it, but like weaponizing mental health right yeah, and yeah. using it as something that's sort of like well this person has this so we don't want them on that team. That's not what we're looking for. We want to say this person is dealing with this. How do we support that person so they can maximize their talents while they're with us and then having a person on staff to be able to actually do that work i think it doesn't have to be like okay well they're they have this so they're not going to be a good fit so this yep. is the reason why we're going to exclude them it should be okay this is what they're dealing with coming through the door do we have the resources to support that yeah. athlete yeah. And i think that's what this that's the shift in perspective that needs to happen for these athletes for sure for sure yeah so did you have any takeaways about you know, this for the start of his kind of journey. Yeah. You know, I Josh think Gordon. Yeah, you made the earlier point about trying to, you know, under, the importance of understanding the, the person. And I think, you know, and you, you touched on, he grew up in, in, in um, sort of a, a harder area of Houston and, um, you know, he, he's, he's been pretty open about, you know, his upbringing and his, his history with substance abuse. And, you know, he's, he, he talks about, you know, middle school was when it really sort of started for him. And, you know, he's talked about he want he used it because he didn't want to feel fear, he didn't want to feel anxiety, and you know we've we've talked about this um, before in previous episodes about like the idea of like self medicating, right? It is quick, easy, and addictive to use to use substances as a way to numb out or to not feel or to not address or to you know to to cope with what's going on and. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks a lot about being in poverty, a lot of crime he was surrounded by. And, you know, weed, particularly in marijuana, was something that just like he talks about, like everybody just did it. Yep. Um, that was one thing that really stood out to me that I think sometimes we think of it of like, you know, I think for him it was multiple. Um, and then, in, you know, in, in 2019 he had he lost his brother. And I think that, you know, contributed to totally, his relapse. Yeah. And yep. um, so, you know, definitely sometimes there are you know, events that lead to substance abuse, at least in the beginning. And mm-hmm. he, he does talk a little bit about some um, situations with trauma when he was younger, but sometimes it's just like the environment and, you know, circumstance, like everybody around him, his, his support network at the time, where everybody was just using it. That was just normal, right. For everyone to be, to be doing that. So um, I think that that was the, the, the big thing when we will, you know, we'll, we talk about different resources of ways to support, but the concept of self-medicating through substances is one of the ones that comes up almost every single time when working with people, um, you know, from a clinical side point or dealing with, with substance abuse um, and substance usage that that's you, it's you typically the response to something that is not wanting to be dealt with. And it's a lot easier to get high and forget and to not have to do those types of things. I think that for him, I think that's a lot of, you know, where things started mm-hmm. and then that was his default for years yeah and then to just expect someone to just not do that without any guidance he talks about that a lot having no guidance or no sort of support or help of like where he should be he had a single mom kind of growing up three two other brothers it's, mm-hmm. imagine it was probably pretty hectic in there I who left at one point i right. think that's also when he started to struggle even more because those were probably his you know closest thing yep. to support or role models he had and once they had left that's when you know things really started to get dicey and, and yep you know one point you made that really stood out for me too is is uh, you know just the the kind of concept of modeled behavior and that's a jargony term. So what that means is what are you exposed to? What are you around when you're growing up? Right, you're you're a kid. Like you don't you can't make decisions for yourself. You don't know how to be self sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole point. That's why you're not you're not legally an adult till you're 18. Is that you're supposed to have a period of development, multiple stages of development, where your you know your brain is forming and you're understanding how to live life. Mm-hmm. If you're, if people who are modeling behavior for you or showing you how to act, showing you how to live during that time, are, are the norm with those people is all unhealthy acts, all unsafe acts, drug use, uh, alcohol use, things like that. That's what you learn. I mean, that, that mm-hmm. not only is it the norm, but it's what you learn, right? It's what, it's how you learn to cope. And so it's very easy for people on the outside looking in to be like, yeah, well, they, I see people blame people with substance oh, abuse yeah. so all the often time. it's like all the time. oh he's not strong enough you know i mean like, right just stop to, just make better choices it's <laughs> right. like okay i'd love to see some people that say that grow up in a house without running running water without heat where everyone's using drugs to cope with everything mm-hmm. and see them come out without a substance abuse issue because mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to say that when you've never had to live it but go back to being you know five six seven eight years old and grow up around that and tell me that it's easy to not be an addict when you grow up because mm-hmm. that's just the norm that you're around and i, mean, I think um, the other key point, this was definitely one of my main takeaways, it's just that the percentage of people dealing with addiction who have underlying trauma, 
Yes. It's I think it's over 90%. It's massively high. And I think that the definition of trauma is is evolving. It's come a long way. We're I think we're going to get into that next episode. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about PTSD. Um but the you know, for people who have substance abuse issues, full-blown addiction issues, 90% or more, I believe, mm-hmm. have underlying trauma issues from their past, whether that's physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect. I mean, I think for him, he talked about how like you said, he started self-medicating with Xanax in seventh yeah, grade. Seventh grade, right, which is like you know, no joke. Heavy uh, duty. Let alone in seventh grade, marijuana as well, even before that, and codeine, and then all that, all that stuff together in middle school. And he said his initial use stemmed from these are four things he said, and the the fourth thing is the most important because it's it's what causes the first three. He says social awkwardness, anxiety, feelings of inadequacy. Those are all caused by the fourth one, which is adolescent trauma-based fear. Yeah. Okay. And for him, it was. Neglect and hunger. Okay, when you're neglected to the when you're a kid to the point where you're you're going hungry and you have no heat and you have no hot water, no idea what that does to a person's psyche. Um, uh, an adult, let alone a, a kid who's a child, been, right? So that's extremely traumatic. Then there was gang violence, right? Um, and he moved around seven times. I mean, we we talk a lot about environment in our work and the importance of environment, physical environment, mm-hmm. um, for consistency, for having a a place you can call home, stability, uh, for stability. It gives you comfort. It gives you a um, you know, a, kind of a backbone to what you're doing on a day to day basis. A safe you know, place. Yes, safe place and 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 stability, like you said, to move around seven times. Even if he hadn't gone through the other things, I would say w- would put him at risk for developing some issues because there's just no no consistency, no place you ever feel tied down to. Right. And I think that messes with a person's mind a little bit. So then when you add to that that he went through uh, neglect and hunger and gang violence, I mean, it's pretty easy to see why at, at an early age in middle school, this kid starts numbing himself just to get through the day because that trauma is what causes things like social awkwardness, it's what causes things like mm-hmm. anxiety, it's what causes feelings of inadequacy. How could you feel adequate? If you're a kid and you're looking around at the people who are supposed to protect you and you got nobody. Right. A kid doesn't know that that's not their fault. They're looking around they're thinking it must be them. Right. Mm-hmm. We always the people have the tendency I see people go two directions with this. I think most people tend to blame themselves far too much and the rest of the people tend to blame others far too much. But I think most people tend to look in blame the mirror yeah. because it gives you a false sense of control. We need we need a reason, we need an explanation for mm-hmm. what we've gone through. And most of the time we look in the mirror and we're like, well, I guess it must be me, mm-hmm. right? And I think kids in the position Josh Gordon were, were in definitely tend to do that, right? They look around, they're like, well, I must be inadequate. I mean, what other explanation is there for this, right. this stuff that I'm dealing with? So I, I totally agree with you that that was a huge takeaway. You know, he joined a gang in high school. Um, I would also say that relates to self-worth. I think a lot of times if you don't have support, if you don't have connection and you feel like you're worthless, you're going to go join a bunch of other people that, that you think are you know, troubled people Mm -hmm. uh, because you feel like that's where I belong. Yeah. If your self-worth is low, let me go find the other people that, that everyone else is looking at as as their self-worth is, you know, they're worthless. I'm going to go join with them because that's where I belong. And I think on the outside too, it's your, you've got immediate loyalty, right? So you feel like these guys would, and quite literally, and he talked about this too, like would, would kill somebody for me. Right. And he might not have felt that level of support. from. They'll support me and no one else ever has. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why it's so enticing. Yep. Absolutely. So he sold weed to feed himself. Again, think about that, right? You're in middle school and you just sell weed just to get food. Um, that it touches on a whole other level of neglect, right? Um, he's drinking vodka during class and, and fortified wines before games to gauge his ability to play. To me, that's a clear-cut sign that the addiction is already leading the show. The addiction, addiction is such a liar, right? It really tells you, it tells you what you need to hear to justify continued use. And this right. is where like, yep. there's a huge difference between mind and, and, uh, and brain. In our mind, we might think like, no, I got this covered, but our brain is an organ that is susceptible to addiction. And when the brain is addicted, it's going to convince the mind of what the mind needs to do to feed what the brain needs. Yes. And so for him already, you know, he's drinking fortified wine as a way to test the fence for weaknesses, so to speak, for Mm -hmm. a little Jurassic Park uh, reference there. So he's trying to figure out, all right, I need this to survive. So I got to test out like what what level can I push this to before games in order mm-hmm. to be able to like keep doing what I got to do just yeah. to just to to get by. So that to me, you know, it's just it's really sad to have someone have to get to that point where they're um, at such a young age already doing it. Because this was in high school, he's already doing that stuff before games. Um, so again, underlying causes. Another thing that kind of stood out to me was uh, the level of enabling that happened, and this is where it's like when you look at the different stages of Josh Gordon's life. If we could do some like kind of like flip flopping and moving around, I think things have been, would have been much different. And what I mean by that is like in the beginning of his life, he had no one there to support him, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, in the in the middle, in high school and in college, he had too much support in the form of enabling. People were just letting him get away. They're helping him cheat drug tests. They're letting him get away with anything. There was no lines being drawn because mm-hmm. all they gave a shit about was his ability football. to play football. That's, yep. it. That's it. So there's too. You went from no support and total neglect to too much support in the form of letting him get away with anything. Mm. Horrible, kind of like yeah. back. You know, two stage back to back, which you can um, argue isn't really support. Right. Which, it's yeah. not support. Yeah, it's like it's 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 enabling. It's yeah. just too much open door. Like right. do whatever you want. Yeah, as long as you're as long on as football you're playing field. football well. Right. That's exactly. It. So yeah. it's it's uh, yeah. Support's the wrong word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, and then at the NFL level, I think it kind of goes back to now they're holding him accountable, and it's like that's not the time. Like I always, I find it shocking that you know they they treat mental health issues and substance abuse like it's a crime mm-hmm. at, at in these professional sports when it shouldn't be. Anyone who's done treatment with someone with substance abuse, no, you, punishment is not going to help them. They, no. Shame and trauma usually is what drives their use. So if, if they're trying to succeed and they slip up because relapse is part of the process, it's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. It's not a matter of, of if, it's, it's a matter of when. when. And you punish them, you're, that's going to make it worse. I mean, now they're just going to feel worse about themselves. They're not going to learn anything. Mm-hmm. It's going to elevate the stress levels, which may, triggers them to probably want to use even more. Yeah. So I just see these like as like a, such an unfortunate occurrence of stages where he needed more support when he was a kid. He needed more lines being drawn and limits being set when he was in high school and college. And then in the pros, it's like we need we need these leagues to be educating and understanding how to be tolerant of substance abuse and relapse, not finding them their entire game checks and <laughs> suspending them. It's like that's not going to help, no. right? So it just feeds the shame, like you mentioned. Exactly. So to me, that kind of that came came through. What other takeaways did you have? Those were, I mean, the the big ones for me. I think the the, the sports media piece, the, the the gap there. I think you make a really really good point about at each individual sort of like stage of his life, there was a big missed opportunity for for supporting, like actually supporting him and actually allowing like for proper treatment to happen. And again, another reason why this podcast is so important is to try to shine light on the importance of. This isn't something that needs to be penalized, especially with addiction and substances. And we've seen massive spikes across the board during this pandemic with substance use um, in, in general. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done to yeah. support. And there's a lot of big organizations that are really, really far behind. The NFL is is one of them. And to penalize somebody for something that they're struggling with is counterintuitive almost. Especially because if, if they had a physical injury... Uh, they get all the services in the world. They're seeing the best doctors. They're seeing the best people. Yeah, they're not they're suspended. The I mean, no, they're, they're they're treated. They're treated, right? And exactly. Exactly. And, and these these types of things aren't aren't any different. And I think you know they. I'm not really sure. I can't I can't speculate again to the minds of the people making the decisions for why penalty is the best approach for this. Um, but I think it's a way for them to try to honestly from a like save face, right? They see substance abuse and drugs as a crime, and so they have to punish it as such rather than. This person is really struggling with something. Yeah. This That's why they are using. Let's come to terms with figuring out okay, why are they using to begin with? How do we support that? Like you said, it's most likely trauma. Yep. How do we support and treat the trauma so that substance isn't the mechanism that they're using to treat themselves? And how do we do a better job of doing that rather than, well, yeah, let me just remove probably the single outlet that has been able to support yeah. them and penalize them financially, demonize them, feed the shame, increase the addiction i mean it's completely backwards right now with how things are done and i think that's that was my my biggest one i was i was really excited to do this podcast on on josh gordon today mainly just to be able to make that point and really drive that home that there we these big organizations approach these things very very wrong in my opinion and there needs to be a lot of work done i think that that we've seen some organizations in some places making some movement nba is a good example now every single team has to have a mental health professional i think there's been some movement the nfl is probably last honestly in in that thing and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of work that needs to be done to to help to support these athletes and we'll do an episode on um you know, CTE and, and concussions and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think the marijuana use is another piece that, for that. I think so. There's a lot of things that need to be done to help support these athletes that these big, big billion dollar organizations have it completely backwards that need to be, that need to be doing a better job. Yeah, totally. I, th- I, I want to say the Players Association, maybe in the NFL, had negotiated a slightly different change to the way the substance abuse policy worked that was a little bit more lenient in understanding of of like maybe like a, a substance abuse and, and more trauma-informed kind of approach yeah uh, that wasn't so heavy-handed right off the bat or didn't maybe they got rid of like a three-strike policy there's something that yeah. they were able to make minor changes but it's it's too little too late they yeah. need to like 
really overhaul that and escalate stuff because it's just not good enough. Um, a couple other things that, that stood out to me. One was that, you know, with his substance abuse, it's not just how he coped with difficult emotions. It's also how he celebrated. I mean, he talks about this where it's like, this is some struggle. Some people struggle just to let themselves feel joy or question, mm. you know, whether they are deserving of joy or success. And so it's not just the people who are like, you know, under stress or anxious and then they cope with it that way. Right. It's also some people that feel worthless and, you know, they're, they have something to celebrate in their life. I think he was trying to celebrate that he was six months sober and he comments like, look, I went to celebrate the only way I know how, like, this is how, like, right. and the, there was, that was his rock bottom. So we, we hear the term rock bottom and substance abuse a lot because unfortunately a lot of people with addiction issues often have to hit a rock bottom for them to realize that difference that we talked about earlier between the mind and the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Again, the brain and the addictive part of the brain is going to convince the mind or the, you know, our version of ourself that we're fine. Mm -hmm. and, and denial is huge with substance abuse or right? lying to yourself. So sometimes people have to hit rock bottom before it kind of rattles them enough to be like, oh, my God, like I've been lying to myself this entire time. I yeah. need to change something drastically. So that was when he hit rock bottom. He wanted to celebrate, um, you know, his six months sober. And he did that by wandering around Gainesville, Florida, trying to find anyone. He was just trying to find the smell of weed so he could buy anything to like celebrate that. And that's when I think he knew to him that was his rock bottom. He checked himself into rehab right after yeah. that. Um so I thought that was really important to kind of mention that. He also discusses how – I liked how he put this when you know we talked in the beginning of this kind of segment about how he, the way he's discussed things has really evolved and he clearly has bought into kind of getting better. He talks about how he's failed himself Yeah. instead of being a failure. I think failing yourself means you, you're starting to believe you deserve better. Mm -hmm. I think that's totally different than saying I have I've failed in my life. That means you think you're a failure as a person. Mm -hmm. He says I failed myself when I started using marijuana regularly as a, as a young teenager, and he talks about four other ways that he failed himself. And so he's starting to see like you know what, forget everybody else. Like I deserve better, and I, I'm letting myself down, and mm -hmm. I deserve to get. I want to get better. Yeah. So I think it's it's great that he uses that language because I think that's really key. And in that, not only is that key for for that reason, but because he talks about how weed. He looks at a big failure to himself as starting to smoke weed at, at a very young age as a young teenager. And so it, it's always been a huge bone of contention with me that weed, uh, you know, is being pumped up as this like totally safe thing mm. for people to use. This safe alternative, this, you know, it's better than alcohol. It's this. I just I do not believe that at all. I have worked with too many guys who cannot handle weed in their life yep. and it ends up turning them in, you know, it, it, it takes them away from a healthy social life. It takes them away from goals they want to set and accomplish. It takes them away from day-to-day -day work ethic. It just, the side effects of weed, the most common ones I see are complete lack of work ethic. Yeah. No motivation. Sorry, I hate the term lazy, so I don't want to put that because it's a label and I don't like it, but uh, no motivation, no work ethic whatsoever, mm -hmm. and typically depression, right? It makes yeah. pulls them away from the stuff that's meaningful to them because they're just numbing themselves all day long. Mm -hmm. And now they got nothing positive in their life, and that's what leads to uh, usually a, a dip in mood or, or dep a depressed state. And, you know, I want to kind of touch on Chris Long here a little bit because um, I know what Chris Long and guys like him are trying to do. Chris Long is, is a former NFL player, and he played for – um, the the Rams for a long time. His father was Harry uh, Howie Long, who Howie also Long. was a yep. um, NFL. football player yep. for a long time. I think on the Raiders. He's also on I think the Fox pregame show for the NFL. So Chris Long is his son. He's also got a, a brother named uh, Kyle Long. I think yeah, played mm -hmm. for the offensive lineman for the Bears. I think Bears. for a long time. Yep. So Chris Long played for the Rams. He played for the he won a Super Bowl with the Patriots and he won a Super Bowl with the Eagles. That's a Super Bowl I'd still like to forget. Yeah, I'm trying to pretend yeah, it never happened. Move on. Move on. Uh, Denial's going to help me in that, in that, uh, <laughs> in that section. Um, but so he's been in the league for a long time, and, and he, I think towards the end of his career, but especially since he retired, has become this very vocal advocate for legalizing marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to say, you know, the, the NBA has, has stopped, um, has kind of taken weed out. They don't test for weed anymore. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. I mean, I think like the, I want to find the line here because I think for me, I don't think weed is a, uh, you know, a horrible thing. I just think it's not accurate to, to pump it up the way Chris Long has. Chris Long has said that, you know, quote, this is a quote, we should be headed to a place where we allow players to enjoy what I would not even call a drug. You know, it's far less dangerous than guzzling a fifth of alcohol and going out after a game. Um, 
I think I know where he's you know I know where he's coming from. Yeah. Right? He's trying to on the in the context of a professional sport, right, where you have these athletes making a lot of money who are sacrificing, especially in, in football, they're sacrificing their bodies to a ridiculous degree. Mm-hmm. You, you touched on Brain concussions especially. and stuff, right, yeah. which we'll definitely get into in a later episode. So it's in the context of pro football where these players do not always, you know, they don't have guaranteed contracts and they're trying to play through pain. And they're, you know, for a long time, it was like they were kind of steered towards like, hey, prescription meds, painkillers, guzzle those or guzzle alcohol. But if you fail a drug test uh, for weed, forget about it. You're suspended. And it did, I think, drive players to use alcohol and prescription meds instead of weed, whereas Mm -hmm. weed is a slightly better alternative uh, to those things well, mm-hmm. maybe even a significantly better in, in, in this in the scope of just uh, um, addiction issues like especially compared to prescription medications and opioids and things like that right. maybe not as much alcohol so i get where he's coming from because he wants the nfl to be like hey if we're gonna make these people sacrifice their bodies and maybe future health physically you know for a short career we should at least let them cope with their physical pain mm-hmm. with weed because weed has come a long way in terms of its legality and, and being shown to be used as a pain reliever, correct? Sure. Okay. Yep, absolutely. So I get what he's doing. That, but what he doesn't – maybe – I don't. So I haven't seen him talk about this, but what I think he needs to realize is that he's not just speaking to a couple thousand NFL players no. or the NFLPA or Roger Goodell. He's speaking to every young Kid. athlete out there that's listening to him talk and that has that mind-brain relationship we just talked about where they're – their brain is trying to convince that their mind that weed's okay. Yeah. Right? I, I can't tell you how many young guys I work with who are in denial about their weed use and are trying to convince themselves it's fine, it's fine, no big deal. I can use right. every day and still succeed. Yeah. And they can't. Well, and the it never works. works. That's what I hear. Like it's better than I than than guzzling than guzzling a fifth, right? I've heard tons of young guys yeah. actually say his name. You're right. And I I think that's the danger. I think the one thing that that, that doesn't get talked about is that from like a de- brain development, like a neurological standpoint, guys p- particularly, our brains, the rational part of our brain, right? The front part of our brain. Yeah. I'm gonna jargon prefrontal cortex, right, right? Right behind your forehead. That doesn't fully develop until your mid like mid twenties. Yeah, twenty five. Twenty five is like the yeah. average time where yeah. people start to like for guys, the brain develops and smoking marijuana directly hinders the development of that. Yeah. Right. Females it's a little bit sooner, but same thing. I mean, starting off with you know, in middle school, smoking weed and then sort of hearing maybe someone you're idolizing saying like, this is a better option than drinking. That is, it's, it's irresponsible in one way because he doesn't get into sort of the, the real. He doesn't balance it out. This no, is where it's like, just he, like, he this is good, it, needs yeah. to be good. And I, and I think there are definitely arguments to be made. And I think that there are definitely people who benefit from, from marijuana use when it's prescribed from a doctor at a, at a time that needs to, like for, for cancer patients. I know it's, it yep. can be helpful with pain relief and, yep. and, and adding some, some appetite. Um, but for a 14 year old kid, like you said, who's trying to rationalize or make it like, you know, give themselves permission and be like, well, Chris Long said that it's okay and it's better to do this than to do that without any context of is it's, it's, it's irresponsible and needs to be more development. I, 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 with you, same thing for me, I try to toe the line of, you know, I think as people, we tend to, to jump from one end of the spectrum to the other and have a hard time finding the balance. And I think that there is balance to be had with, with marijuana use and, 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 and especially, but you know, it's not this demon terrible drug, yep. but it's also not this saving grace that's going to cure everything. Yes. It, it, there's there is a balance to what needs to be happened, but you go too far towards like this is okay and we just let's just allow this to happen, and you're on a platform where millions of people yes. are listening to yes. you is really really dangerous, and you need to be a little bit more educated or be educated on what you're saying yeah. and the impacts you might be having with especially the younger youth where they their brain physically cannot make a rational decision around that. And then when they do choose to use marijuana, hinders the ability for the growth of that to happen yeah. to continue to make better ones. And they're not they're not using it for pain relief. No. Like, these young kids are not using it because they're not like high powered athletes. You're right. They're using it to I, I think when it's this is how the the the, the um you know the the scale not the scale, but the graph, kind of the the path of substance use and addiction takes hold, right? It starts with using for pleasure. But I wish I, you know, maybe I'll put something in the show notes that links to like a graph on this because it, in the beginning when a person uses, the pleasure goes up. So the time is short. You've just started using. Pleasure is really high. It never gets higher than that. It starts to dip and then it goes down forever because your body and, br- and brain become uh, accustomed to it. So you adapt. Your mm-hmm. tolerance levels go up. Mm-hmm. Your pleasure percentage goes down. And so eventually you cross that invisible line of addiction, which is where you go from using something for a positive result to instead you go under that line and now you're just using it to prevent a negative result. Mm-hmm. It means you are 
you know, waking up during any given day and you're using it so that you don't feel terrible, not to feel better, right? Right. And so for for young guys, I think it always starts out with this delusion that like oh, I'm just use it to like you know feel good once right. in a while, you know, let them yeah. uh, kick kick back and let loose. And, yeah, play you know, some video games. Play, get play, high, yeah, watch that videos. kind of thing. Yeah, it's always how it starts, and everyone you know deceives themselves into thinking they can keep it that way. No one can. Mm-hmm. It, you know, every time it has a track that inevitably goes to the same place. And the most thing, the thing I see the most with young guys that use weed is they're they're using it to numb their anxiety. Mm-hmm. They can't fall asleep at night because mm-hmm. their their mind their mind is wound up and they're thinking about they're worrying about stuff the next day. They're worrying about their their life path, their future. They're worried about this and that, and they can't sleep. And so what do they do? They smoke. They get high and numb themselves, and then they, it allows them to fall asleep. And contrary to some people out there that believe that's okay, it's not. When you smoke weed before you go to bed. You're actually turning off what are called glial cells in the brain. And when those those are like the cells that are like the vacuum cleaners. They come on. Alcohol does this too. They come on and they kind of clean out the waste from ne- billions of neurons firing all day long. Yep. That's what allows you to feel refreshed when you wake up in the morning. That's why if you smoke weed right before bed a lot of times, especially if you drink before bed, you know, you're going to wait. You can sleep 10 hours. You wake up feeling like you slept four. Because the brain is groggy and it did not actually, um, you know, go through the healing process that right. it needs to go through. So I see that all the time with like, you know, guys that um, – smoke weed at a young age to numb their anxiety also important to, to mention weed now versus weed even 10 years ago night and day it, it is not the weed like from even when you and i were growing up even more recently than that where it's like you know it's it's not going to hit you that hard and this stuff like the thc content is very high i've seen um you know, some young guys i've worked with that have smoked weed that have had psychotic symptoms yeah. from smoking weed that's more been common. happening more and more recently mm-hmm. um you know dab pens are more available now which can't be detected by parents because they don't smell or that kind yep. of thing uh edibles are are now even more i mean I, there's like you four dispensaries on just on the road to my house now where it's yeah. like you know people who are less than 20 younger than 21 are getting this stuff very easily um you talked about weed in the, in the developing brain you know it's just it, it is it's a bad idea to normalize this kind of stuff. Um, and I think I know where Chris Long is coming from, but he has to recognize that if he's going to talk like that, he's got to give a balanced perspective mm-hmm. about context of NFL players, high-performing athletes, and pain relief versus general use for young people, right? And, yeah. and I just wish he would at least go on the record to say something to a caveat to that. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so any other takeaways for you from from uh, just the, the Josh Gordon side of things now? Okay, we'll get into... Um, substance abuse in general. I think a uh, quick couple quick um, stats on substance abuse from drugabuse.gov and, and the CDC. 9% increase over the last five years in marijuana use among college students, 6% increase among non-college students. Uh, the U.S. reported a $740 billion loss due to drug and alcohol use um, stemming from missed work, health care costs, and crime. In a 12-month period ending in May 2020, over 81,000 overdose deaths happened, which is the most in a 12-month period ever. I would I would guarantee that if they t- they they don't have this yet, but it, when they have the 2020 stats of oh. the year because of the pandemic and everything else, um, that's going to be Through off the, the charts. Yeah. Um, the opioid crisis needs its own separate episode. Yeah. Um, we'll get into that at some point. Uh, some other data from the addiction centers uh, of America: almost 21 million Americans have at least one addiction, yet only 10 percent of them get treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of scary. Drug overdose deaths have more than tripled since 1990. We've talked in a previous episode about how suicide rates have been going up too, and I mm-hmm. think sometimes drug overdose is also suicide, and, mm-hmm. and it's not recognized. Um, people kind of, you know, using drug, drugging themselves to death, drinking themselves to death. Uh, more than ninety percent of people who have an addiction started drinking alcohol or using drugs before they were eighteen years old, uh, and then Americans between the ages of eighteen and twenty-five are most likely to use addictive drugs. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's the period between. You talked about how development of the brain kind of really finishes around 25 or 26, and yet we're being told we're adults at 18. Mm-hmm. And that emerge, it's called emerging adulthood. That yep. 18 to 25 year old period is really a challenge for people these days, especially because the bankability of a college degree is not what it used to be. And I think that that screws a lot of people over because they graduate, if they go to college, they graduate, they're riddled with debt, and they don't have a, a real path to clear cut work or a career, and the stress levels go up, financial resources go down. Yep. Right? Not, not a coincidence. So, um, to get into substance abuse and addiction a little bit, you know, I, I want to, we're not going to go do like the DSM diagnosis here or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I just want to cover some things that I think are important real quick. You know, addiction is not just to drugs. Like that is really important for people to know. You can be addicted to a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be addicted to 
you know, video games. You can be addicted to, I think the two biggest ones I see are gambling and porn, mm-hmm. especially for young guys. Yeah. And both of those are normalized to the nth degree these days, mm-hmm. right? Internet porn is a massive issue that's not being talked about enough. No. Um, and then gambling is being legalized more and more. And I think there's uh, the access to it through technology and, and different apps and stuff like that is only increasing. Both those are becoming massive issues, have been and are becoming massive issues. So it's not just to drugs. You can be right. addicted to a lot of different things because addiction is more about the ke- the artificial ke- uh, chemical release in the brain mm-hmm. than it is about an actual drug. And right. you don't need a drug to create that no. effect, right? Um, I think with, with substance abuse and addiction, you have to know about the hereditary slash family slash environment factor. Um, addiction, especially to alcohol, alcoholism runs in families. Yep. So you might be born into a family where you're prone to get it just because it, it's in your DNA. Yep. Um, there's also the family aspect, which is, uh, we talked about model behavior. If you're growing up around it, it's more normalized, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. So some signs, I want to get some signs that maybe you or someone, you know, have a, a an issue, um, to me, uh, you know, I'll probably kick it to you after this, but we get, you know, poor decision-making is one financially spending a lot of money on, mm-hmm. on drugs uh, is also a huge warning sign, red flag. Avoiding other key parts of life is a big one, right? You start to see people avoid work, school, friends, family, never a good sign. Usually mm-hmm. means something's going on. Uh, you, using while you're alone. You know, again, most people, young guys especially, they start by smoking weed with friends while playing video yeah, games. and recreation. Right. Mm-hmm. And inevitably it starts to transition into I'll smoke by myself before I go to bed. That When that starts to happen, that's a big time turning point. It's a red flag to look for. Um, use earlier and earlier in the day, right? If you're starting, you're doing a little wake and bake when you get up, like mm-hmm. that's that's not a good sign. If you're smoking to go to work, smoking to go to school, not, not a good idea. Um, and then again, the a key sign for me is that when the use becomes less about feeling good and more about not feeling terrible, right? Bad sign, right? Mm-hmm. Because now you've gone down the addiction curve to the point where it's it, the pleasure's not going to be high, right? You've you crossed know? that threshold. Yes. Um, so, any thoughts on on just from the substance abuse angle for for listeners? Yeah, no, I think the biggest one that I usually highlight is that you know looking for big behavior changes, right? So, yeah. you know, someone who was active all the time really enjoyed going out, riding bikes, being outside, doing whatever, and now is all of a sudden sort of secluding themselves to, really to, yeah. to their room. It doesn't necessarily mean substance abuse. I think that's something important to, to highlight. Especially now in 2020 with trying to stay in and, and be safe. And right. That kind of thing, exactly. Right? Yeah. So I don't want to alarm people about, yeah. about that piece, but you know, typically looking for something where someone was doing something on a consistent basis and then switching that behavior. That's sort of like a curiosity point of like, why? Yeah. Right. And, um, so that's that's definitely a, uh, one of the bigger things that I sort of look for that loss, like not pursuing things that they were doing. The lethargy you talked about, I, I agree. I don't like the word lazy. Um, it's just not a, an appropriate term to use when yeah. identifying or labeling somebody. Um, but someone who was sort of driven towards goals and now all of a sudden is not. Those are the, some of the some of those key factors that I try to look at when working with somebody, um, or if I'm hearing someone talk to me about someone that they're concerned about. Those are some of the, the questions that screening I screening questions, ask, kind yeah, of like screening, yeah. try to figure out what might be going through yeah. or going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we touched on you know for me the percentage of those dealing with addiction who have underlying trauma is a big thing to look out for. You know, if you know someone with substance abuse substance abuse issues, it's good to to at least consider what else they may have gone through because there's a good chance they went through something that they might not even be aware of. Again, denial is a huge coping mechanism and sometimes it's unconscious. People block out trauma to be able to just go through life. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes therapy is really helpful in this because you're unpacking those layers to really get to what's driving the substance use. So, you know, show some empathy, I think, is first for other people because there's a good chance there's other stuff going on. And if you're someone listening who has a substance abuse issue, try to look back at your past and try to figure out did i go through something uh traumatic on some level that may be driving this and the, the definition of trauma has changed i know it, you know it, it's most often identified with like you know military-based ptsd but mm-hmm. it's not just that i mean it really can be um physical abuse psychological abuse sexual abuse of any kind a neglect, neglect in, in yep. youth um even bullying you know i've worked with some guys where they've been significantly bullied and they have some either full-blown ptsd or some signs of it that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so um be aware of the trauma you know that you may have gone through or that people that you know with substance abuse issues that may have substance abuse issues may have gone through some trauma as well i think you make a good point about trying to come at those conversations through a lens of empathy yes i think we we often blame first and especially for substance especially for substance abuse like just just the comments like i hear like just stop like why they why can't they just stop or why you know i I think 
we've talked about this earlier in this episode, just kind of feeds that shame. Trying to come for that conversation through a sense of empathy is is far more effective. Totally, totally. So a couple other bullet points. You know, I talked in a past episode about how substance use is, I like to refer to it as borrowed happiness on the next day because it really is. You're... It doesn't come for free. Anytime you're numbing yourself with a substance or some kind of addictive behavior, because again, it, it might not be a drug, you're borrowing that natural happiness the next day. You're setting yourself back, mm-hmm. and it, it it that catches up to you pretty quick. So that's one thing to keep an eye out for. Um, also, just caution people that nothing. What I like to say to people: nothing healthy exists that feels as good as instantly as drugs or like an addictive chemical release. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist, and you have to accept that um, instead of having an expectation, again, accept versus expect. You can't expect to find something on a scale of a day that's natural and healthy that's going to feel as good as something like a drug or some kind of addictive chemical release. It doesn't exist. You have to accept that first, start from that place, and then try to build healthy habits on top of it. Yeah, you have to understand it's going to be harder work. Absolutely. But but more rewarding long-term. I think long-term, you're actually building up to like a healthy sense of self Mm -hmm. and a a much more rewarding, uh, joyful life. Mm -hmm. It just takes time to kind of build that. And it's never going to, again, pleasure versus joy. Those are not the same thing, Mm -hmm. right? You'll have more joy. You might not have as much pleasure, but pleasure is a chemical thing. And you got to be careful with identifying that with happiness or joy. Um, Let's see. So another uh, key thing to consider is how, you know, the reliance on any addicted addiction or numbing from problems can be a gateway. So meaning, you know, it's it's not just you know weed. I know people say weed is not a gateway drug. Anything that cr- leads to the brain relying on uh you know the re- artificial release of chemicals to numb yourself from life is a gateway. Right. Doesn't matter if it's weed or if it's porn use or if it's gambling or if it's heroin. They're all gateway things mm-hmm. because you're you're conditioning your brain to need that artificial chemical release to get by, to get through life. Mm -hmm. That's always a gateway because that's the way the path of addiction works. It starts with that and it, you, you adjust, right? Yeah. Your, your ability to adapt, your brain develops a tolerance. You need more the next time. Sometime that drug becomes not good enough. So you step it up to the next drug. Mm -hmm. That's how this stuff works, right? So anything can be a gateway in that sense. Um, Let's see. So in terms of steps to take for people, I, mean, I think for me, the first step is to just be honest with yourself. Um, you got to be aware of denial. It's such a, it's a very, very common coping mechanism, and it's never more present than it is with substance abuse because yeah. the addiction wants you to think you can keep doing it. It's going to try to trick you. It wants you to justify the use. It wants you to put that as the priority. You got to admit where your brain is lying to your mind a little bit, um, hopefully without having to hit rock bottom. We talked about Josh Gordon and how mm-hmm. he had to hit rock bottom before he recognized that. Let's hope that people listening, if they have some substance abuse issues, they're able to head off this, the problem before they have to hit rock bottom. Yeah. Um, so that's that's first one. Be honest with yourself and be aware of denial. The second one is get support as much as possible, right? The right friends and family. Yes. Um, we have the uh, SAMHSA National Helpline in our show notes. It's, it's 1-800-662-HELP. Um, that's a way to get, connect to some possible resources on substance use. I think when it comes to getting support, I don't know about you, but one thing I look to do with clients is is not just get them connected to the right family, but it's get the wrong people out. Yes. That is a, an absolute necessity. Is like there's usually people enabling you, uh, other users who, you know, misery loves company. Like they, they want you to keep using because it will justify their continued use. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to erase numbers out of your phone and you got to disconnect from some people in order to prioritize your own health and well-being. So it's getting support, but it's also getting rid of the wrong people. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I, I when I talk about this with with clients, I, t- I call about you know either friendship inventory or support network inventory, right? Like go through the people you surround yourself with and really analyze what do they bring to me? Are they supporting my actual growth or joy? Are they do you contributing? actually write this out too? Yeah, yeah I have I them sort of go through as a process yeah, of yeah. sort of like let's make a tree of your support. That's great, yeah. and really try to figure out are these people contributing yeah. to your benefit and contributing to your pursuit of joy, or are they detracting? Yeah, and it's a hard process because oftentimes, to your point, the people who are, you know, sucking or feeding or yes. you know contributing to their substance use yep. are some of the people they feel the closest with yes. because yeah. they it, like loyalty you said, or loyalty support at a bad time yeah. giving giving permission for them to continue yeah. to do that and that brain wants to stay in that place and so sometimes leads to hard conversations but yeah. having a really effective support network and you know I, I say support network not necessarily family mm-hmm. because sometimes family isn't the support network and True. so you want to have 
a firm sense of support going through this. I think that's one of the most crucial things. We talked about this um, previously, but about asking for help and being okay with accepting help. And I think having the right people in your corner to be able to do that is really, is really important. And, you know, one of the disclaimers that we always put up when we're talking about resources or sort of like tips and strategies for people dealing with these different mental health issues is yes, finding a good support network, but finding the right professional to be working with is paramount, right? When you're working with substance abuse issues, that's definitely one of the things that I, you have to be working with someone that's going to be able to coordinate these different things for you, helping you get in the right, you know, um, meeting with the right person, helping to sort of go through these different yeah. processes is just, it's, it's absolutely essential. And I really want to emphasize that, that you don't have to do this alone yeah. if you're struggling with this or if you know someone who is. Seek support from the people who do this work because it's it, the, the path to treatment is, is possible. There's plenty of people who go through this who mm-hmm. find success with going through that. But that's got to be one of the first steps of like getting to that place of finding the people that are going to be helped you get Get, give you the support that you actually need. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, going through an inventory is really a great way to do it because you're you're really writing it out one by one and mm-hmm. you're giving intentional thought to it instead of just glossing it over quickly. It does require a lot of thought, a lot mm-hmm. of planning um, because these are hard decisions. It's never easy to let go of certain people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very difficult to do. So I agree with that. I think harm reduction is is another key concept for people. That's, that's a bit of a substance abuse jargony term, but it, I'll explain it. Harm reduction means... You know, a lot of people, especially parents do this, they think that when um, their son or daughter is struggling with substance abuse, that it's got to be, it's a black and white, cut and dry, all or nothing thing. Like, no, no use allowed, right? You have to stop or else you'll be punished and grounded for life. And that substance use does not work that way. Like, relapse is absolutely part of the process. Mm -hmm. And if you expect perfection, you're going to be really disappointed and you're going to set people up for failure. You have to understand that that relapse is part of that process and it, it happens gradually sometimes and they need your support when they fall off even more than when they're doing well, right? So we have to understand that to re- uh, harm reduction is about instead of expecting perfection, how do we set them up to reduce harm as much as possible, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're reducing that harm. That means considering safety. It means, all right, if you're going to use, try to use a little bit less just to mm-hmm. keep yourself safe. If you're out and you've used, don't get behind the wheel of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, don't let someone else drive you who's been using. Like it's looking for ways to say, all right, we're, we're being honest that perfection's not possible, Let's try to reduce the harm as much as possible so that – and includes like stepping down sometimes. Mm-hmm. So instead of just quitting cold turkey, how can we reduce that and, and be realistic about it? So harm reduction is a key approach. Um, changing your environment is really important and not just temporarily like a, a vacation. Some of these like nice rehab facilities out in Arizona, I get it. It's a great place to go to get treatment. But that place does not resemble what you're coming back to. And people have to recognize that, that you have to change your own environment uh, as much as possible to resemble what you need it to be post rehab or even if you didn't go to rehab mm-hmm. because there's usually aspects of your environment that are driving some of your addictive behaviors um, and you need to change those in order to um, we talked with Josh about Josh Gordon moving seven times right you need to have a stable environment home environment and you need to be able to put things in place in that environment that are going to support your recovery right um, let's see and then the last one is is just understand your triggers and confront them at the right pace you got to know which things are going to make you most likely to relapse. This is part of harm reduction too. Um, identifying your triggers and then trying to kind of attack them at the right pace. Meaning, um, you know, we, we've talked in the past about the zone of proximal development, which yes. is the 20% rule. You always want to be kind of 20% out of your comfort zone so mm-hmm. that you're not pushing yourself too little, but you're also not pushing yourself too much. If you're trying to quit a substance and you have a number one trigger, um, and you just try to get rid of that, like off the bat, or or let's say let's say you try to face it um, in its worst uh, worst scenario right off the bat. You know, I'm thinking like, like let's say a person smokes cigarettes, right, mm-hmm. and their main trigger is is coffee in the morning, right? At, when they go to Dunkin' Donuts or something like that, like they get coffee, and that the smell and and the drinking the coffee yep. makes them want right. If you try to confront that right away, there's a good chance you're going to be trying to bite off more than you can chew. Mm -hmm. So let's try to take care of some other triggers, face those, and leave that one for last, and then learn to change that association, change that routine or or habit to be able to set ourselves up to do things differently moving forward. Mm -hmm. So it's understanding your triggers is really key, and then confront them systematically, usually easiest to hardest you want to confront those things. Yeah, and substituting more healthy behaviors and more healthy types of things that are going to be more beneficial than picking up the substance or whatever it happens yes, to be. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And you can, you have to remove the associations because mm-hmm. if you keep the associations in place, it's going to keep triggering you right. to want to use. It's going to keep going. 
So uh, we're going to give an example of, of Grim Drive today. Uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, quickly just mentioned Kobe Bryant and, and the Mamba mentality. You know, obviously as a, a Boston fan, Celtics fan, he was someone that going up <laughs> against him was, you know, we always rooted against him, but I think always had a lot of respect for him as an athlete and his determination and, and creating the Mamba mentality and what that meant. And, you know, this, this episode's coming out on the exact, I think, one-year anniversary of him passing away. I thought it would be good to at least call some attention to to him and and because I think he is an example of grim drive for sure. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, his his pursuit of being great at at his individual sport, not just basketball, but just him as a human being, yeah. is seen as you don't find many people like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, a quick reminder to people listening: just to click subscribe on your podcast listening platform and give us a rate and a review if possible. We really appreciate all the feedback. Uh, we're going to offer a pair of free Celtics tickets to a game in 2021 to 2022. Uh, we'll also, you know, offer uh, tickets to a different game if you're not a Celtics fan or you want to, you're you're out of uh, Boston, you want to see a different game. We're happy to do that. So if one lucky person is going to uh, win two tickets to a game out of all who write an honest review for us in the first three months of 2021, you can enter to win these tickets by taking a screenshot of your review of your review and submitting that through the contact us option on our website at grimdrive.com going to ask you for your name and email address and we'll provide you with the option to upload the screenshot file just make sure you take the screenshot of the review before you click submit and then upload that to the website uh, one other reminder all the helpful information and links uh, and uh, some of the data we mentioned today can be accessed in the show notes and on our website at grimdrive.com thank you so much for listening to the grim drive podcast for this discussion about josh gordon and substance abuse we will be back next time to talk about robin laner and ptsd sounds good thanks everyone for listening Thank you.